Hey everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. And today, I'm moving on to episode 104. Today, I've got a little bit of feedback um, on some previous episodes about Paloena. Actually, some really good feedback on Paloena and some feedback on the ash... Um, Blight, I guess is the best way to put it. We're going to take a look at our featured species of the month, and we're going to take kind of a deep dive into kiln drying, specifically dehumidification kilns. I'm getting a lot of questions about drying wood, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions that need to be righted about how lumber is dried. And actually, this applies to dehumidification kilns or even solar kilns to a lesser extent. We'll call this Lumber Drying 101. And ideally, along the way, we'll answer a few of those questions. You know what? Just to keep you guys on your toes, I'm going to answer a question about spalting your own wood. So that being said, I do want to say thank you to my sponsors of the show, my patrons, my loyal, lovely people who have gone to patreon.com slash lumber update and supported the show because these questions are coming from those lovely people. So if you are interested in supporting the show, please, I would greatly appreciate that. And speaking of featured species of the month, for those walnut tier subscribers, that's at $8 a month, they will get mailed off to them the featured species tech specification sticker. You can peel off the back and stick it anywhere you want, or you can keep the back on if you want and use it as collectible cards. They're the hottest thing since pogs. <laughs> if you don't remember what pogs are, um, you must be at least this old to listen to this podcast, apparently. Anyway, let, let's move on. I've got some, some interesting feedback here. Chad wrote in in response to um, the Paloena featured species last month, and he said, did you know about this project with Jimmy Carter's uh, Polonia trees? It seems right up your alley with the Luthery connection. So I'll post a link to this article. Uh, the um, worldtree.eco is the organization, and I, don't, I believe Jimmy Carter is heavily invested in this. He's also kind of the spokesperson. If you don't know Jimmy Carter, not only was he a former president of the United States, he is an avid woodworker. He's kind of become like the most famous woodworker that gets touted out all the time when you talk about, ooh, these famous people are woodworkers, you know? Uh, Jimmy Carter tends to be right there uh, at the top of William H. Macy's kind of in there, but Jimmy Carter certainly leads the charge. But Worldtree.eco is an organization specializing in Polonia and trying to build its kind of street cred and saying how uh, how sustainable and renewable it is. And we talked about that with the feature species being such a fast growing tree and how they are specifically using it for luthery. And if you remember my Tonewoods episode, I talked about density versus rigidity and hardness. All of those factors play into making a good Tonewood. Well, certainly with an incredibly low density it, uh, even though it's quite soft and, you know, the harder, less dense woods make really good tone woods. Well, uh, Polonia is, is quite soft, but it's also really, 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 really low density. So that kind of offsets and it actually turns out to be a pretty decent tone wood. And this uh, link that I'm going to point to is the President Carter Legacy Collection. It's a bunch of different instruments created by luthiers around the country, some mandolins, some acoustic guitars, some solid body guitars, all featuring Polonia as the species. And you actually can hear those instruments being played on the site. So I, I'd seen uh, Polonia kind of mentioned half, uh, halfway in passing as a luthier tool, but I didn't actually kind of dig into it or, or think about it much. So I don't know if I even mentioned that as one of the common uses of the species. But backtrack from this particular question, uh, um, 
article to worldtree.eco and look at their website and look at what they're doing to promote Polonia as a solid commercial species. It's actually really exciting. As excited as I got about the species, the thing that kind of held me in check was this wood isn't exactly easy to find. It's one of those kind of, not even secondary, more like tertiary species. And here's an organization that's throwing a lot of effort into making it a primary species and reducing the kind of the bandwidth, the workload on some of the existing primary species domestically, and certainly primary species from an exotic perspective. So thank you very much, Chad, for that um, article about the actual, you know, instrument making, but also just I was not aware of worldtree.eco. Very, very cool stuff. And in that same vein, Jay wrote in and he said, I haven't seen any polony up here in New England, but I did send away from some seeds and planted them at my house. It's great cleaning up the fewer big leaves and the growth rate is awesome. So two things I was wondering about is how would it do as a torrified wood or thermally modified, if you're not familiar with that fancy Scrabble word, um, as well as how would it do as resin filled? Because of the large number of straight tubes, I think it would both work well torrified for substantial strength as the cooked walls would get impressively stronger. Resin filled would get much heavier, but it would still be interesting to work with. Have you heard anything about either being done? Honestly, I haven't, but I did a little bit of digging on this and I called um, one of my contacts at the Thermowood Association and I called a contact from a company who unfortunately is now defunct, but specialized in resin um, uh, physical modification of lumber. Um, in, resin impregnation would be the official term, but that's just like um, Thermowood is thermally modified. Resin, filling the resin, um, filling the wood with resin is physically modified. And then of course using uh, chemicals like uh, uh, um, a acetyl for furyl alcohol is chemical modification. That's three types of modification. Look and listen to my episode on um, modified woods for a little bit more on that. So um, Polonia apparently was looked at <clears throat> as a torrified wood. And I think there were some initial tests done, but because the density is quite low and because um, it's really a very dry wood. Um, so you look at something like Northeastern white pine, it's a low density wood, but it's very high in sap. And until it's dried, until some of that sap is set, it's, it's quite resinous, it's quite runny. Um, the polonia doesn't really have a lot of the sugars and the sap and the hemocellulose, it's, it's a very dry wood. That's the best way I can think to put it. So when torrifying it, there was quite a bit of cell degradation and that actually caused some problems. So to get it up to the temperatures required for thermal modification above 200 C, there was a fair bit of loss, a, a lot of wood that was kind of not usable. And I think it was kind of turned away from simply because, you know, if you put a thousand feet into the thermal modification kiln and you only get 200 feet out, that loss is not really um, sustainable over the long haul. And even if the torrified wood was really, really cool, like substantially stronger, the amount of wastage to get to it is not really sustainable. So now I'm, I'm, I'm pulling that out of nowhere. I don't have any data that says that um, the, the torrified product was that much better. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that it probably wasn't substantially outperforming anything like ash and therefore it wasn't used. So you do have to be a little cautious there because thermal modification is not just hardening the cell walls, it's doing that by baking off the sugars and baking the hemocellulose, some of the lignin and some of the cellulose and actually 
kind of in some ways physically modifying because it, it kind of crystallizes those substances. And when there's not a lot of hemocellulose and not a lot of sugars and resins to begin with, there's really nothing to do but actually break down the lignin. And that's where some of that wastage came from. Now, from a physical modification and filling them with resins, this did work according to my um, physical modification contact. But there's so much dead space. The density is so low that, um, A, the cost of production required it so much resin in order to kind of top off those canals that it produced such an incredibly high density and high weight material that it kind of wasn't worth it in the long run. So I do think modification, uh, whether it's physical, chemical, or thermal, does have its limits. Just because it works well in one species doesn't mean it's going to work well in every species. And if it works well in one species because of low density, there's always a point where the density becomes too low or the lack of sugars becomes too low. And I do think polonia is one of those examples where it won't work. So a lot of this is anecdotal. A lot of this is kind of guesswork from some experts in the field. Um, so it doesn't mean you shouldn't try it, but here again, you always have to think in terms of the production value, like how much is required, how much raw materials is required in terms of the resin and what is the, the output that you're going to get. And will that perform substantially better than the current species that are already, you know, easier to produce. And I think that's the, the big issue there. Finally, uh, Jake shared an article for me, and this is in relation to my recent episode about the emerald ash borer. And um, he was talking, or the article basically talks about how there is some hope for the ash tree. They've discovered that some of the ash, well, there's certainly the emerald ash borer is one problem. That's the bug. That's the bur burrowing insect that's causing most of the problems. Ash is also affected by a particular fungus. And they've started to discover a lot of trees that are more resistant to the fungus. And as they begin investigating what was it about those trees that made them resistant to the fungus, they also discovered that those trees are fighting back against the emerald ash borer. And a little bit of scientific research discovered that the, the beetles were feeding on the fungus, among many things, but the fungus was actually limiting the amount of sugars and the amount of hemocellulose in the wood that the beetles were um, eating. So essentially what you had in these trees that were resistant to the fungus, they were producing kind of sickly emerald ash borers that weren't getting, you know, their Wheaties every morning. And the tree was able to fight off those insects and, and kind of, they had a little bit of a dieback, but then they recovered from it. So they were able to draw that parallel. And now they're starting to realize that there's a possibility through, um, a lot of different research and a lot of, well, I guess ultimately it could be a genetic thing, being able to figure out ways to, to deal with this fungus resistant trees, but also just planting the ash trees that are fungus resistant could provide kind of a barrier against the spread of the emerald ash borer. So in addition to that wasp that I was talking about, that is essentially the, the natural predator of the emerald ash borer, here's another option for planting um, a strain of ash trees resistant to fungus and essentially while it's not a predator it is a it is a um a substance a, a fungus essentially that just makes weak beetles so it's pretty interesting this is really really kind of in the weeds type uh, ecological research but i love that this type of stuff is going on and i kind of keep tabs on that to see what that actually does for us in helping um the ash trees so let's move on 
to our featured species. I teased this on my Instagram. I actually showed uh, some of the stickers that are gonna be shipping out shortly, but this month, drum roll, is the European beach, Fagus sylvatica. Fagus, Fagus, I don't know. I'll never get the pronunciation right on these. There'll be potato, potato type thing. People are always gonna have different pronunciations. I'm just gonna go with Fagus sylvatica, the genus being Fagus the species Sylvatica. That is the European beach. Now, right off the bat, we're going to talk about the European beach versus the American beach, Fagus grandifolia. These two are nearly identical. They're very difficult to tell apart. The American beach is slightly heavier, a little bit denser, yet ironically, it's slightly softer. The Janko hardness is, is about 100 foot pounds less. Now, there could be a bunch of reasons for this. I think I would attribute it to, to the climate in North America and the soil chemistry. Um, but really, slight difference. Slight is the key word here. Pretty much consider these species to be interchangeable. So when I'm talking, while I am specifically talking about the European beach, mainly because I wanted to stop just talking about North American woods, there are lots of international listeners to this. I do hear you folks. I know there's a lot of you in Europe. So here we go. We're jumping across the pond. We're talking about European beach. So this, of course, grows in Europe, specifically Northern Europe. Um, you will find it all the way into Asia in the boreal forests of, of Russia, but you certainly will find it in Germany. You'll find it in the Netherlands. You'll find it up into the Scandinavian countries, um, but not a whole lot in southern France and Spain. This is definitely a, a colder climate type tree. It is, you know, it's a white wood, ge generically a white wood. So um, kind of creamy to pinkish colored. And this actually brings to the fact that most European beach is a huge market for it where they want it to be steamed. And the steaming, I remember talking about this with walnut steaming. Steaming is exactly as it sounds. You're injecting a whole lot of steam while it's in the kiln and you're essentially flushing the wood. You're, you're pushing hot water into the, the pores of the wood. And that at that really, really high temperature, it kind of takes all the extractives, it takes the various resins, the various sugars, and kind of flushes it through the wood and essentially out of the wood. In walnut, it's used to homogenize the wood. It's used to bring some some of the dark brown heartwood into the creamy sapwood and kind of even out the line between heartwood and sapwood. In European beach, it's meant to bring up that pink kind of warm tone. So unsteamed European beach is going to be a lot whiter. Steamed European beach is going to have kind of a, a more caramelized brown to a lot of pink, a very, very pink wood. And that's really the whole reason they do it is to give you that very attractive pinkish brown hue. And I also think that it, it actually differentiates it then from the other whitewoods, from the maples. Um, and it gives it its kind of its own distinction. And I actually think that's particularly important because you think about it, you know, you got walnut dark, dark brown. <clears throat> You've got your exotics, your mahoganies, your red-ish woods, even your, your domestics, your red wood, literally red wood. Um, and then you got white wood. And there's not really a lot of in-between. You know, there's butternut, there's white oak. Red oak really has more of that reddish color. Cherries, more of the reddish color. That kind of just generic brown to light brown, there's not really a lot there. And I do think that the European beach, and for that matter, the American beach, also when steamed, kind of fills that niche. Now, the other thing that a lot of the beach steaming people will tell you is that it does make the wood more workable. Um, it kind of mellows out some of the early and late growth, and it kind of 
for lack of a better term, homogenizes the entire species. And it just makes it easier to, to take details, whether they be routed by hand or with power tools. From a carving perspective, while it is a little bit harder than some of your best carving woods, it is going to be more consistent all the way across the grain. And in that way, I do think they're right that it does make it more workable. So, um, like I said, it's grown in Northern Europe. It is found wild across Northern Europe, but it's also heavily maintained in specific plantations. Um, this, is a, this is a bumper crop. This is a major commodity species in Europe. And there are whole forests that are monoculture species. It is managed you know, in those monoculture type plantations in rows. And you will often see that, uh, especially, well, as I said, in Northern Europe. Let's talk a little bit about the tech properties. Um, hardness, 1450 foot pounds. So on par with with hard maple. Hard maple is around 1425, if I remember correctly. So very similar to hard maple. Um, modules of elasticity, 15,970. Modules, excuse me, modules of rupture, 15,970. Modules of elasticity, just over 2 million. So again, some similar numbers to um, uh, uh, um, the maples, specifically soft maples. But what's particularly interesting about this, the elasticity numbers will change. And I'll talk about this in a little bit, but, but uh, European beech lends itself to steam bending quite nicely. So let's put a pin in that. Let's finish this off. Movement wise, tangentially, it moves 11.7%. It's a huge number, folks. Most hardwoods sit around five to 6%. The really, really radical ones are 8%. This is almost 12% seriously, seriously, a lot of tangential movement. But more importantly, radial is 5.8%. That brings your TR ratio to two. So this is a very anisotropic wood. Anisotropic meaning it moves differently in one direction over another. This moves twice as much in the tangential plane than it does in the radial plane. So at face value, European beach is quite unstable which is ironic when you consider that one of the things that most woodworkers know is that it was used for wooden planes. So yeah, I have an old blog post on the Renaissance Woodworker blog titled Raging Against Plane Making Tradition. Um, beach was used with so many planes and people for the longest time thought, oh, it's the perfect plane wood. I think really is that it was super hyper available um, and that's why it became the plane maker's wood. Not that it was excelled in any particular reason. And in fact, when you stack beach up against the many other woods that we have access to in this global economy, beach is not a good species at all. Anyway, little tangent there. <laughs> Tangential movement. Uh, sorry. Um, this sits around 44 pounds per cubic foot. So like twice that of, well, more than twice that of your Western red cedars. Uh, about two thirds over again, the cherry. Um, again, you're going to find it similar to hard maple and a lot of, um, from a density perspective, weight is certainly not density. Weight is a little bit more dependent upon things like gravity, but you get the idea. It is a dense wood. The trees can be up to about 130 feet tall and the typical three to five foot in diameter. So it's a, it's a decent sized tree. I talked about how this wood is often steamed. Well, one of the things that happens when you steam wood, not only do you homogenize and make everything consistent, but you make a very thirsty wood. You're, you're pulling a lot of those sugars and hemocellulose and things throughout the wood and it flushes it out, washes it out. So what you end up with is this species that when you go to glue it, you get it 
really thirsty. It's sucking up glue a lot. You might have to use a little bit more glue in your glue joints. You also find that when you finish it, it's going to suck up a whole lot of finish. Very typical. You find this even with walnut, another species that's steamed a lot. That steaming process just flushes a lot of it out and leaves it really thirsty and ready to take a lot more um, moisture of any kind. One of the other things that I found kind of interesting, this is like a little side story, uh, and I, I love to talk about this stuff when possible, when applicable with certain species, but this is a species that it's it's been used a long time, a long time. There are historians that claim the first written European literature was inscribed on beech bark in Sanskrit. In fact, the English word book comes from the Anglo-Saxon bach, which is the derivative of the Anglo-Saxon beech or beech. So fun little side story. When I talk about how this wood has been used for a long time and is used widespread use, we're going back hundreds and hundreds of years here. I just think that's really cool. Anyway, little, little tangent there. Now, the ingrain structure, it is a diffuse porous wood, very small pores, very tightly grouped together. Um, but what's interesting they group tighter together in the late wood. So kind of under, without magnification to the naked eye, it actually looks, the ingrain looks very striated. It almost looks ring porous. Um, and when you look at the ingrain, you'll see kind of these darker stripes um, and lighter stripes, typical to something you might see in like Douglas fir, heavy uh, differential in density from early wood to late wood. And what you're actually looking at is a tighter grouping of pores. The density doesn't vary dramatically from early wood to late wood like you would see in Douglas fir. That color is simply there's more pores, more densely packed together in that late wood. So it's kind of sort of ring porous. If it wasn't for the fact that the pores were evenly scattered throughout the early wood as well, we might actually call it ring porous. So there are pores all over, early wood and late wood, which by definition makes it diffuse porous, but that kind of higher density, I think, oh, actually I should say lower density, due to the higher grouping of pores, you're actually gonna have lower density in those late wood sections. So the one thing we can usually say about diffuse porous woods is they do not rive well, they don't split very well, nor do they bend very well whether kiln-dried or air-dried, when you apply steam to them, they don't bend very well. If you're doing a bent lamination with really like kind of skinny lambs, you generally will say you want to go thinner laminations with the diffuse porous wood because it doesn't bend as well. Well, here's the funny thing about this, and this is what I love about wood. You can't really look at one technical property and say, oh, <clears throat> the Modules of rupture and modules of elasticity are the same as hard maple. Hard maple doesn't bend well, therefore European beech doesn't bend well. When you look at the ingrain structure and you look at the grouping of those pores, that changes the script here. And it's really fascinating. As I said, this is what I love about wood and one of the reasons that I, I think I wanted to feature this species. Because from a common use perspective, certainly furniture and cabinet making, as I said, in Europe, this is your commodity species. This is almost like tulip poplar or yellow poplar in the US. It's used for everything. Um, Certainly it's peeled a lot for, for plywood, for veneers for plywood. It is used for just veneers alone. Of course, wooden plane making is what a lot of us think of. I've already mentioned about that. Um, it's used a lot for linear moldings, like we use poplar here for painted moldings. You will find European beach used for linear moldings, both painted and left natural. 
for God's sake, like all of Danish modern design and all of like the Nordic Scandinavian design, it seems to be based around the look and feel of natural European beach. So it's used everywhere. And as I said, it's so readily available across Europe. It's kind of the chicken and egg. Is it used everywhere because of the aesthetic or is it used everywhere because it's just so readily available everywhere? But the other common use you find it in is chair making. And when you look at it, in many instances, when you look at like traditional Norwegian, Swedish, um, kind of sloyd handicraft type work, you see a lot of stick chair designs, but also um, rung chair designs with bent slats. Think of a ladder back chair with those bent slats in the back. Think of the post and rung assembly. All of that is is generally riven into into basic shape and then turned, and then you know uh, mortises are bored and the whole thing is stuck together. The slats are shaved down to a thin level, uh, thin thickness, I should say, then steam bent into shape, and it does really well for that because European beach has always just been known to steam bend incredibly well. And you think about it, it's probably actually where the idea of steaming it in the first place to give you that warmer hue because there were chair makers out there are like, man, this stuff splits great. You know, they weren't thinking about the technical properties of why hundreds of years ago. They just, that was the tree that happened to be growing. They cut it down. They hit, took a fro to it or hatchet to it and thought, man, this stuff splits like it's perforated. And it really does because of that somewhat ring porous looking structure. You have all those little perforations, even though the pores are spread you know, diffusely throughout the board, that tighter grouping allows it to split quite nicely. And because of that, inject a bunch of steam in there and those tighter groupings of pores are going to swell up and give you almost like internal bent lamination. So what do we do in bent lamination? We take the wood and we cut it into really thin strips. Then we put glue on either side of those strips and we bend it into a form. And the glue kind of acts as lubricant to allow those um, individual laminates to slide past one another, to bend, to compress on, on the inside of the curve and stretch on the outside of the curve. But because it's really thin, you've got that ability to, to compress and stretch those fibers. Imagine now that instead of glue, you have those tightly packed pores in the late wood that are now really pliable. They've been heated up with steam. The lignin has been softened and it's allowing it to, to stretch and compress just like we were doing with those thinner plies. So now instead of it being a solid wood, you think of the early, or excuse me, the late wood as the glue and the early wood as those individual laminates in a bent lamination. And you can bend it quite easily. And this is why I think beach has become almost ubiquitous with chair making, especially Danish mid-modern design in chair making. So it's one of those fantastic species that the technical numbers do not scream, I want to rive this. I don't want to make chairs with it. I definitely don't want to steam bend it. But actually, it really is. And it all has to do with that ingrained structure. This is why folks, every time people send me pictures and they want to identify something, I say, send me a picture of the ingrain, an in-focus picture of the ingrain. The ingrain can tell you so much, really everything you want to know about identifying, but also the workability. Understand what pores and pore structure and parenchyma structure and ray structure can really do. So speaking of which, um, there are some pretty wide, highly visible rays in European beach, but they're kind of like, again, like hard maple. If you look at a quarter sawn piece of hard maple, the rays are visible, but they're kind of like, instead of these being these big fat kind of, you know, white oak or red oak type rays, they're little tiny, almost like 
dashes across the board. That's what you see in hard maple. In beech, they're about the same width and about the same length that you'll see, but they're of a darker color. That's like more of a darker brown, and, and they really give a pretty almost speckled look to Cortison beech. It's a very... Um, yeah, it's a thing. It's almost an aesthetic in and of itself, that speckled nature of European beach, um, which again, some of that can also attribute to some of the technical properties. Seeing is that there are pretty wide, um, uh, uh, excuse me, medium to wide uh, rays that are also evenly spaced across the board. So we talked about those common uses. If we wanted to look at alternatives, certainly hard maple is going to be an alternative. It's a whitish wood. It's got similar working properties on paper. Hard maple does not steam bend very well, nor does it rive at all. Uh, other things to look at, certainly American beach, as I said, they're almost indistinguishable. American beach is a tiny bit harder, as I said. Um, yellow birch would be another one to look at just from a pure aesthetic perspective. Yellow birch is going to be a bit softer. Um, it's not quite as workable as beach, but from an aesthetic perspective, and it's not that far off. Uh, another one to look at would be plane tree maple. And um, well, plane tree maple is often known um, from a, a um, like a common name perspective. A lot of times it's um, uh, uh, English sycamore. Um, Acer pseudoplantinus or plane tree plantinus. I think that's where that came from. Not that they were making planes from it, but English sycamore, not American sycamore, English sycamore, Acer planta, plan, plantinus. Yeah, I think I'm saying that right. That would be another one because it's often, you know, referred to uh, as, as, as a beach or sometimes um, American sycamore could be a decent uh, substitute similar light wood. The ray fleck in the quarter sawn is much more like lace wood. Um, American sycamore is quite a bit lighter, but from uh, an appearance perspective, not far off. Another one to look at would be American hornbeam. A little bit denser, quite a bit harder, but a similar look, especially in the quarter sawn feel, although a little bit more yellowish in cast than the brownish pinkish of beach. Um, Anagray, if you want to go into a more exotic, anagray would be a similar one. Very homogenous species. Anagray is often used for plywood because of that, that consistency across the grain, which again is why beech is used for a lot of plywood, that consistency. You can peel it down to a really thin, you know, tenth of an inch ply and get uh, a ply that's going to hold together. Uh, anagray would be the same way. Um, Madrone might be another one to look at. Madrone has that kind of pinkish hue to it that you get from Steam Beach. Similar working properties. Madrone's going to be a little bit harder, um, maybe a little bit more brittle, certainly not from a steam bending perspective. I think European Beach is going to be unique in that. Another one to look at if you want to go really far abroad would be down under uh, Tasmanian Myrtle often referred to as like Australian Beach or our New Zealand Beach. Although I think I don't know why they call it Tasmanian myrtle. I don't think it grows in Tasmania. I think it only grows in like Australia. I could be wrong in that, but that's another one that is that is often referred to like colloquial colloquially as beach or marketing terms um, as beach. So to me, it's a fascinating species. I love the fact that there's strong similarities between the American counterpart and the European counterpart. So, you know, you can eat your cake and get it and um, have your cake and eat it too. I'm, I'm serving those, those European listeners that have been saying, Hey, you keep quit talking about North American woods, but let's be honest. The majority of my listeners are North American based. So here's a species that not only can you get in North America, but you can also use the American counterpart. Um, so Phagus sylvatica, 
for the European one, Fagus grandifolia for the um, American one. And, and I don't know this for certain, but just this, the fact that the American one is grandifolia, which means big flower, I would imagine the American one, although very difficult to distinguish in lumber form, the American one, I believe, much has probably has a larger flower than the European one. I'm totally pulling it out of the air. I have no facts to back that up other than the botanical. When you look at like the Magnolia grandiflora, it's known because it's got a big flower. So that's what grandifloria means. So we're gonna go with that. So there's the featured species. I'll be sending out the European beach featured species stickers uh, or in the coming weeks, I have them in. I'll start shipping them out actually tomorrow. Anyone who becomes a Walnut Tier subscriber from Patreon in the month of July will be getting one of these stickers. Thank you guys for supporting that. And I've gotten such great feedback from these stickers so far. I'm glad everyone's enjoying them. And uh, I look forward to doing more of these in the future. So let's move on to some questions. Wild card question. This is from Scott. He says, any thoughts on spalting my own maple? I've got a bunch of sugar and red maple air dried only boards. Suggestions for in inducing some spalting. So um, Scott, honestly, if you Google spalt my own lumber, you're going to find quite a few examples of this. We actually did this experiment at the Stepping Stone Museum many years ago. We were just kind of curious about it. We actually had some um, sugar maple that was really, really low grade and it was in smaller pieces. So we decided to quote unquote plant it to see if we can do some spalting. And we had some success. I don't think we, we let it um, cook long enough, if you will. So the idea is you really want to keep the wood moist. And honestly, this will work for both air dried and kiln dried. It's not really going to make that much of a difference. The kiln dried will take longer because a lot of the sugars and things that will induce the spalting that will be kind of the catalyst for the spalting. A lot of that stuff has been set and kind of dried and hardened and in some cases crystallized. You can do it certainly, but air dried will will work better. Green will work even better. You want to keep the whole thing moist. So you want to take the board and put it in a container, like, you know, a large Rubbermaid container or wrap it in plastic, you know, a larger board. You're not going to get a container big enough, but you want to wrap it in plastic. But occasionally you do want to poke some small holes in the plastic or if it's in a container, occasionally kind of pop the lid and let some fresh oxygen in because the spalting process, think of this like you know, making a sourdough starter and, and using yeast, there's an actual chemical reaction happening in there. And if you starve all the oxygen, that chemical reaction will stop. So you're wrapping it up and the oxygen that's in there is being used to facilitate this chemical reaction. If that's all gone, it's going to either dramatically slow it down or shut it off entirely. So just remember little you know, holes punched in the plastic you've got it wrapped in should be enough, or occasionally maybe once every couple of days, burp the container and let some fresh oxygen in. And then you want to plant it, you know, use some damp shavings, or if you have some rotten wood shavings, um, cover it in that stuff. Um, you can use potting soil, or you could go to like your garden center and buy just pure vermiculite and just bury the wood in that. I would think going and just buying like potting soil because it's going to have vermiculite in it. It's going to be quite moist, a lot of a lot of moss and other things in there that will really help hold the moisture. Whereas just pure vermiculite, vermiculite is a mineral. The pure vermiculite, while it will facilitate the chemical reaction, it's kind of dry to begin with. So I think you might actually, I don't know, it might act like a desiccant in some respects. So I think you're better off putting a bunch of wet shavings and vermiculite or just two birds with one stone by potting soil and 
you know, put some potting soil on the bottom of the container, put some potting soil on the bottom of the plastic, put the board on, cover it in the potting soil, wrap the whole thing up tight. So you can maybe speed things up by introducing some organics, nitrogen, sugars, manure. Again, you're planting something. Um, one of the articles I read, I loved it. You could basically just plant it in the, in the soil and then pour a beer over top of it. So you're adding a lot of organics and you're adding like hops and, and yeast into oh, alcohol, not yeast, uh, adding alcohol. Um, so you really, I mean, spalting is fermenting. That's really what's happening. You're fermenting the wood. So why not take a fermented substance with a lot of sugars and pour it over it? That will help keep the moisture up and it'll also add that organic that, that um, to induce this spalting. And then basically let it sit for six or more weeks. I want to say we let ours sit for about three weeks and we had a couple of lines of spalting kind of show up, but you really want to give it a lot of time. Check on it after six weeks, see what it looks like and necessary, cover it back up and stick it in a little bit more. So yeah, it feels like I'm making a recipe for a sourdough starter here, but really um, the chemistry is the same or the biology. I don't know. I guess we call it the biology is still the same. So good luck with that, Scott. Let me know how it goes. So I have a question from Julian on drying his own lumber and a question from Joshua on drying some lumber specifically to kill bugs that he's found in his air dried lumber. So how should I do this? Should I talk about kilns first or, well, let's, let's read Julian's question. Um, Julian says he, he has a question about the importance of the temperature while drying lumber. Um, as I understand from listening to your podcast, temperatures of around 60 degrees C are important to ensure that I get rid of all the bugs, but I want to build a small a dehumidification kiln with a normal dehumidifier, and these won't work at such high temperatures um, because heating a small kiln would consume a lot of energy. We're planning, and we were planning to build a sauna anyway. I was wondering if it was possible to heat the wood in the sauna for some days, and after that, put in a kiln and keep the temperature at or around 20 or 30 degrees C and dry the wood for some weeks in there. So Julian is talking about using a sauna, a lot of dry heat, um, and and a, an, and just like a, a lower heat kiln to do this. Uh, he wants to kill his bugs, but he also just wants to dry the lumber. Joshua has a bunch of um, eight quarter lumber, uh, ash, walnut, English oak, or excuse me, English walnut and oak and sycamore. And he's had them air drying for two years and now suddenly he started to see little boring insect piles. So he said, I've been having the lumber air drying for a couple of years and all of a sudden the bug holes appeared in my ash lumber, only the ash lumber, one year, or excuse me, two years after sawing and I've been checking it regularly. Now suddenly there's boring holes and he wants to know what can I do? Like I kind of like the air drying. He likes the easier workability, likes the varied color from air drying, but he wants to kill the bugs and hopefully maintain some of that air drying workability. So there's a couple of things here. I will often say the only surefire way to get rid of those bugs is throwing in a kiln, holding it for 48 hours um, to kill those bugs. So let's start with the easier question here. If you wanna maintain that easier, more spongy workability of air dried and you have bugs, uh, Joshua, you wanna try a borax solution. Get some borax and actually you can 
Google this to get the exact recipe. Um, borax and water, essentially. You're going to dilute the borax. You're going to put it in like a pump sprayer, um, pump that thing up, and then coat the boards. You want to lay the boards out in a single layer, spray the face, spray the edges, spray the ingrains, spray both faces, drench it in the borax solution. And as that, uh, as the water flashes off, it will, water carries the borax kind of deeper into the wood and it will kill the bugs. Um, you're essentially chemically treating the wood. Um, think of pressure treated lumber, but you're not really using pressure, but you are using a solution to, we rely upon the lower viscosity of the solution to get it into the wood and the borax will kill those bugs. Now, what else will that borax do to the wood? It's not really gonna harden the cell walls like kiln drying will do. You might get some discoloration. Um, so it's worth kind of spraying it on the boards and going back like 40 hours later and washing the boards down to try to clear out the excess borax so you don't really bleach it. Borax will be a similar compound, you know, in a lesser extent to something like chlorine or something like that. It's gonna go in and kill the bugs. We don't necessarily wanna alter the color. And I don't know for sure. I know a lot of people who treat their wood with borax and have had no problem. But if you've never done it before, um, ash is pretty non-reactive. If I were doing this on red oak, I would worry. With the high tannin content of red oak, I just worry about the inner uh, uh, the cross reactions that might happen there. Walnut as well. Um, there's so much stuff, so many chemicals in walnuts. One of the reasons that walnut has that uh, oligopathy effect that they say you know you don't want to put the shavings in a horse barn because it can make the horses sick. Um, you don't want to plant tomatoes under your walnut tree because it will, uh, the uh, resins and the oils, the, the juggling resins, the juggling oil in the walnut can affect this. Now, some of these studies lately have maybe disproven this, but still walnut is a very oily resinous wood. And there's a lot of things in it that react to the borax. But ash, I think you might be okay. If you're, if you're cautious about it, take a couple of boards and treat it and see how you do and double check them for boring holes down the line. That would be the simple solution, a chemical treatment. Otherwise, you're gonna to need to put it in the kiln, you're gonna to need to raise that temperature up and hold it for 48 hours. That could harden those cell walls and reduce some of the air drying. For 48 hours, maybe not. But the problem is you can't just stick boards in a kiln and you know throw it up over 60 degrees C you know, really quickly and hold them 48 hours. You need to slowly get it there or you're going to have case hardening issues. You're going to essentially turn your wood into firewood. So I, you know, the longer process to get there and the longer process to cool it down, well, that's called kiln drying. So Joshua, for you, we want to maintain the air dry workability, try the borax solution. If this still doesn't work, then fortunately you may have to, to fall back on kiln drying. Um, and this goes, even though the discussion we had last week about the ash borers and the bugs kind of leaving the heartwood alone, as I said, it doesn't mean that they won't go after it. Without anything else to eat, they may go after it. And we don't even know if they're emerald ash borers. We don't know what those boring insects are. They could be powder posts from the oak. They could be any number of boring insects. It's hard to say, um, but it, you're... you're drying heartwood is not immune to these bugs. Um, it could still, you know, be infested and maybe where you dried it, that's another place to look. Look at the ground underneath. Look at the trees around them. They could be, have come from the surrounding environment and you just were unlucky enough to put your air drying stack right where they already were. And they're like, oh, look, more food. And they jumped on it. 
Now let's talk about drying lumber. Let's go back to to Julian's question because I hear from a lot of people who are talking about, I'm going to put lumber in my attic or I'm going to build a, you know, a small kiln that put a heater in there. Um, I'm going to stick it in my oven. I'm going to stick it in my sauna. You cannot dry lumber with heat alone. Well, you can, but you'll destroy it. Um, You must introduce moisture. And that sounds contrary. It sounds like, well, I'm drying lumber. I'm trying to extract moisture from the wood. Why would I want to add moisture into the kiln? It all comes down to controlling the rate of drying. If you stick a board that's 20% or 30%, that just doesn't matter. Just say 30% moisture content into an oven and you start raising the temperature, even if you raise it slowly, you're talking about a very, very dry heat. And that's gonna cause that moisture content in the wood to drop rapidly, very quickly. And that will cause cell collapse, that will cause case hardening, because those outer layers are going to dry faster than the inner layers. Those outer layers will harden as they lose their moisture, the cell walls will harden, and then the inner layer, it's gonna crack around it. You know, you're gonna get honeycombing issues. You could even get reverse case hardening. There's so many things that could happen by not introducing moisture. So as we raise the temperature, we introduce moisture. We increase the humidity, the relative humidity of the kiln so that we can cause the moisture to start to drop slower. And what's happening is they're raising the temperature, the air becomes drier and it's wanting to, and the, the ventilation moving to the kiln is the air is dry, the wood is wet, the air that, that's being blown over the wood is really dry and hot. And it's essentially sucking the moisture out of the wood because that air, that dry air is very, very thirsty and it's wanting to pull that moisture right out of the wood. Um, so it's the same thing we talked about putting into a dry oven, but if you add moisture, then the air is not quite as thirsty and it's going to extract, you know, 1% at a time instead of 5% at a time as it blows over the board. And it allows you to control that temperature and control that rate of evaporation. Cause that's really what we're talking about. As the moisture is extracted from the wood, it's extracted as it evaporates out of the wood and then the air is vented. And that's really what a, you know, a dehumidifier is doing. The air is passing over these hotter coils, which is sucking the moisture out of the air. And then the, the drier air is vented out of the front of the dehumidifier. Same thing's happening in a dehumidification kiln. But you have two, well, really three things to look at. Dry bulb temperature, wet bulb temperature, and the dew point. Let's start with the dew point. The dew point is the temperature at which the air becomes saturated with moisture and can no longer hold moisture. So the hotter air gets, the more water vapor it can hold. Therefore, the colder it gets, the less water vapor it can hold. So that's why 60 degrees Fahrenheit and 60% humidity doesn't feel that bad. But 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 60% humidity sucks. It's rainforest temperature. Let's not let's forget about 80% humidity. I'm in an environment right now, it's about 95 degrees outside and it's about 80% humidity. It is miserable. It's walk outside and my glasses immediately go opaque type temperatures. So that dew point is the temperature. When the temperature drops to that dew point, air, or excuse me, water condenses out and it rains. So when you look at like cumulus clouds and that flat bottom and the cumulus clouds right at the tropopause, that's essentially a dew point temperature where that water is now condensing into clouds. That's why we get clouds. That's a gross oversimplification. Meteorologists don't send me a bunch of angry emails. I've studied meteorology. I actually know, but let's not get into it. That's close enough. So 
Dew point is the temperature in which the water condenses out of the air on its own. The dry bulb temperature is exactly that. Think of a, of a thermometer. At the bottom, there's that little bulb at the bottom, and the mercury rises as the temperature goes up. That dry bulb is a thermometer that's kept essentially shielded. It's it's shielded from the 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 moisture and essentially ventilated. Air is allowed to move over that bulb and it's not allowing the moisture to hang around. So it's kind of like as we vent the kiln, as we push dry air over the kiln, it's extracting moisture. So as that that bulb in the bottom of the thermometer, thermometer is being ventilated, you're getting a more real temperature. An ambient temperature is what it's sometimes called. So the dry bulb temperature is 98 degrees. The wet bulb temperature will always be lower than the dry bulb. And the wet bulb is literally that. The bulb of the thermometer is wrapped in like a wet muslin. And that allows the moisture in the air to be right up against that that bulb that's determining the, the level of the thermometer. And that, the amount of, as, as the moisture evaporates from that wet muslin, you undergo a process called adiabatic cooling. As water evaporates from a substance. It's actually, it pulls heat with it. There is, there is a, a reaction that happens there that is exothermic in nature. So it's actually extracting heat from, in this case, the wood, or in this case, the bulb, the air that's around that thermometer. So as it cools and evaporates out, it's cooling around. And the same thing why do we sweat? We sweat in order to cool the body. So as you as you sweat, you get moisture, sweat beating up on your skin. And as the air moving over your skin evaporates off that moisture, it lowers the temperature of your skin and therefore lowers the temperature of your body. And that's how we cool ourselves. So I ride my Peloton inside and I get ridiculously sweaty. Um, like really, really hot to the point where I got to put on a fan. But I go out on my road bike outside in the elements and I'll ride even harder and I don't get sweaty at all. It's because I'm moving at, you know, 20, 23, 24 miles an hour and the air is blowing over my skin and it's evaporating off and I'm staying relatively cool. Um, unless I'm riding like I did today, in which case there's no amount of air. I can't ride fast enough to evaporate the sweat off my skin and I come back looking like a drowned rat. But that, that cooling effect, it's called adiabatic cooling. So that's what's happening with a wet bulb temperature. So the wet bulb will always be lower than the dry bulb, but it's going to be higher than the dew point. So the, the dry bulb is 90 degrees, the wet bulb is maybe 87 degrees, and the dew point is 82. And if that wet bulb temperature continues to drop and it hits 82, well, then it completely condenses out and becomes like a super wet bulb, you know, and you're not getting, you're getting condensation off of that. And there's no amount of cooling happening because the muslin has become saturated. So we have in a kiln, we have a thermometer. That's, that's kept and allowed to be ventilated as the air moves through the kiln. It's, it's kept um, not wrapped in muslin and it's allowed to have air blowing over it. That's giving us a dry bulb. That's the ambient temperature in the kiln. We have a wet bulb that's kept sheltered and, and the thermometer is wrapped in muslin. And that differential from between dry bulb and wet bulb is giving us the idea of what the relative humidity is. So that's more of the, like a lot of weather apps will call it the real fill temperature or the heat index, that type of thing. That's what it really feels like because it's, you know, moist outside and you feel like, you know, have a nice warm, wet blanket wrapped around you. Um, those of you in Colorado, I remember my Colorado summers. I envy you. 
Those of you who don't use coasters because you don't know what water condensing on the outside of a glass is, yep, I feel for you. I remember those days. Not so much out east. So we have that we have a dry bulb thermometer, we have a wet bulb thermometer, and that allows us to get an idea of the amount of moisture in the air. Then we also have probes that are inserted in various parts, inserted into the end of the into the lumber itself. So think of a, a moisture meter, a pen moisture meter that you actually drive into the end grain. That's what essentially the probe is. It's their little probes scattered throughout the, the load, through the lumber in the kiln, that are constantly giving us moisture percentage readings in the wood itself. So we have a dry bulb temperature, we have a wet bulb temperature, and we have moisture content readings coming, you know, randomly scattered throughout the lumber that's in, in the kiln. Well, with those three data points, we can build a kiln schedule. And I actually will include this in the show notes. You can download kiln schedules for both domestic and exotic species from the National Forest Products Laboratory that will show you, here is step one. Step one, your dry bulb temperature should be this. Your wet bulb temperature should be this until moisture content of this particular species is reached. So I'm just gonna make up numbers right now. Don't quote this as what you should do. So say we're drying hard maple. Your wet bulb temperature is 90 degrees, excuse me, your dry bulb temperature is 90 degrees C, your wet bulb temperature is 84 degrees C, and your moisture content is 14%. When it gets to 14%, the moisture content gets to 14%, and it starts to drop below that, now you move to step two in the kiln. And now the dry bulb temperature needs to go up to 105 degrees, and you wanna maintain your wet bulb temperature at 98 degrees. So you're increasing the amount of moisture, injecting more steam into the kiln in order to raise that wet bulb temperature, in order to raise the amount of humidity, the amount of moisture in the air. And you keep it at that until your moisture content reaches 12%. Once you hit 12%, then you move on to step three. When you raise the dry bulb temperature higher, you raise the wet bulb temperature higher in order to increase more moisture to control that drop in moisture contents in the board. And by constantly injecting more steam into the kiln, you're slowing that rate. So you can imagine if you put 30% moisture content wood into an oven that was 90 degrees C, you know, and like no wet bulb temperature, like no air in there, dry desert heat. That moisture content would drop from 30 to 29 to 25 to 14, like in hours. And it would completely cook the lumber. It would turn it into firewood because that's all it would be good for. In fact, it might even ignite it. (laughs) The higher you go with the, you know, you're, you're asking for a fire at that point. So not only to prevent fire, but also to prevent case hardening, to prevent cell wall collapse, to prevent massive amounts of checking, you introduce moisture in order to slow that rate of moisture loss, in order to slow the essentially the adiabatic effect of the lumber that's pulling that moisture out. So this is where the idea of sticking in a sauna, that scares the hell out of me. Sticking it in your attic that gets to 120 degrees, you know, I've stuck a fan up there. Well, all you're gonna do, all the fan is gonna do is speed up the evaporation because you're pushing more dry air over the board. It is super dry in that attic right now because the temperature is really, really high. And the more air you blow in there, essentially the more you're venting, say you're in Maryland like me and you have a lot of high humidity, but in a really, really high temperature environment that is like dramatically higher than like ambient, if it's 90 degrees outside, but it's 130 in your attic, that temperature differential, as you blow air across it, it's going to 
completely destroy the wood that's in your attic. You need to introduce moisture in order to slow that rate of absorption. Well, here's the thing. Unless you have a dry bulb reading and a wet bulb reading and a constant um, moisture meter checking things, you can't really know what you're doing. Now, you don't. if you don't have probes, it's a matter of going in like every day and taking a sample, like cutting a, a piece off the board and then going in and running a moisture meter in it, or ideally checking, checking its weight, sticking in an oven, a dry oven, and sucking all the moisture out to 0% and then weighing it again. And that differential, that delta from the, the moist wood right out of the kiln to the 0% moisture will, will give you, you can do a calculation to figure out the actual moisture content. We actually still do that at our yard. We have the probes and we have computers that monitor both the moisture content, the dry bulb and the wet bulb temperature, but we're also doing double check because those probes you know, depends on the side of the load, but maybe there's three or four probes in one load. We're still going to do that kind of double check once a day by actually taking a sample and going from there. Um, so you don't have to have the probes, but you will want to take a sample probably every day, especially in the early stages when the lumber is going to be dropping moisture a lot faster. So unless you Unless you have a dry bulb and a wet bulb measurement and a moisture content measurement, you can't follow a kiln schedule. It's just kind of throw it against the wall to see what sticks. Now, certainly you can put it in a kiln um, without introducing steam and you can continually check it with a moisture meter. But the problem there is the rate of moisture drop. It will be dropping in moisture and you may think I'll keep checking it until it gets to 8% and then I'll pull it out. But if it got from 30% to 8% over 48 hours, that is way too fast. Most of these kiln drying schedules take weeks and weeks and weeks, if not months, to slowly, safely, and without introducing tension, get the lumber down to six to eight percent that is not going to like blow apart when you run it over a table saw. So that's the other thing are the tension tests. So that's the other reason we do manual sampling. It's not so much that we don't trust the probes, but we'll take that sample and we'll cut that little tuning fork shape into it. I've talked about this on previous episodes, but if you're unfamiliar with this, I'll include a PDF in the show notes of this episode about the tension tests, cut a tuning fork into it. And if the prongs of that fork bend towards one another, then you're seeing case hardening. If they bend away from one another, you're seeing reverse case hardening. If they don't move, then you're, you're good to go. Like you're, you're dropping moisture at the appropriate rate. So we're doing that manual sampling mostly to check for tension, but we're also doing a double check that we're getting if the moisture probes say 12%, well, this part of the kiln is reading a 14%, this part of the kiln is reading 10%, because you're gonna have some variance in a large kiln. It's the advantage of using a smaller kiln is you won't have as much variation. So if there's no takeaway, there's a lot of other variances there, but I often tell people to look at kiln schedules because they're public domain, you can get them, but you, you absolutely have to have dry bulb, wet bulb, and moisture readings in order to follow that kiln schedule. It's not gonna tell you set the temperature for this and hold it there for two weeks um, because it's, it, it may vary. Wood is organic, right? You know, hard maple, you may say, will take about two weeks to get there, but one load may take eight days and another load may take two weeks. Because the, the time, it's less about the time and all about that moisture content moving slowly, maintaining those dry bulb and wet bulb temperatures until a certain moisture content. They're designed, those schedules are designed to slowly drop that moisture content. So um, I'm specifically, uh, specifically picking on Julian and Joshua here, but 
for all of you who have submitted questions to me about I'm going to build a dry kiln or I'm going to use a solar kiln or something like that, I'm answering all of them at once. So let's talk about solar kilns. Solar kilns are not going to get as hot. Well, I shouldn't say that. Depending on where you are, a solar kiln could get pretty hot. The thing with a solar kiln is there's a cooling cycle that is that is um, circadian. You know, Overnight, it's going to cool because there's no sun on it. So while the temperature may be raising really high during the day, it's not staying there for more than probably like three to four hours. Um, at most, maybe maybe 10 hours throughout the day. And the rest of the time, that temperature is actually dropping. So you still don't really have the control, but you could have a dry bulb and a wet bulb temperature in there. And you could take moisture readings so that you could essentially know, I want to hold that, you know, um, if, if I'm in a really, really sunny area and it, it's getting a lot of sun and it's heating up a lot and it's kind of going above what that kiln schedule says, you might want to like throw up, you know, a tarp over it in order to cool it down a little bit and then maybe take the tarp off after an hour and let it heat up again in order to keep that dry bulb temperature from skyrocketing and causing problems. Now, as you progress to the kiln schedule and you're getting higher and higher temperatures, you might allow that, that solar kiln to go untarped for longer. Now, certain species are harder to dry than others. The oaks are hard species to dry. If you're dealing with an easier species to dry like cherry, um, then maybe you don't have to be quite as you know, uh, uh, vigilant about it. Um, certainly the fact that the lumber is cooling and any tension that was built up during the hot cycle in a solar kiln is kind of released and, and um, eased as things cool. So you never really, while it may go under tension, under really high, it doesn't have time to set in that tension. And then it starts to release the tension and the moisture starts to mitigate back in as the temperature drops. So I do think that solar kilns, while they are a little bit less precise, like you may not have the numbers or the ability to control it, control the temperature and, and control the amount of moisture in there, at least you can take those measurements so you can know by looking at the kiln schedule, whoa, I'm way off the rails here. And as I said, I need to tarp it. Um, Vacuum kilns, it's a whole other world, folks. Um, technically, you could do the same thing by looking at dry bulb and wet bulb, but you're gonna, you've just got a bunch of different things going on because you're reducing the boiler point. You're changing the script there. Vacuum kilns are gonna have their own schedules to look at. So again, that's the thing that I wanna hammer into people's heads. It sounds counterintuitive. In order to dry lumber, you have to introduce moisture. That sounds weird, but that's the only way to do it and not ruin your wood. If you're making firewood, if that's what you're going for, you want to season firewood, then throw that sucker in an oven and don't worry about it. It will turn into firewood real, real fast. Um, and again, it's all going to vary depending upon the species, depending upon the thickness, and depending upon the volume of the kiln and the volume of the lumber that's in it. The more dead space in the kiln, the more variability you may have. So you really don't want dead space in your kiln. You want to stack it as, as full as you possibly can and play Tetris to get all the dead air out of there in order to get a more unified dry bulb, wet bulb, and moisture content reading. There's a lot to this, folks, and that's why a lot of times I talk about, you know, you know, there's this great democratization of the sawmill industry and people buying wood misers and sawing their own lumber. But I sometimes wonder if the kiln drying might be better left to the professionals. Um, that sounds very exclusionary. And I know obviously I work for a company that does drying, but there's so many things that can go wrong. So if you're going to dry your own lumber, more power to you. Just make sure you've done your research and you have the ability to monitor the lumber and you have a kiln schedule on hand that you can at least stay kind of in the ballpark 
and understand what's happening. It's not a set it and forget it type thing um, and just expect wonderful lumber to come out. And because of this, there's always that caveat emptor when you're buying lumber from somebody who has more of a small kind of fly-by-night operation. If they say they've dried it, you might want to start asking questions, well, how did you dry it? How did you monitor it? And now you know fancy words like dry bulb, wet bulb, moisture content, and dew point. And you can understand. And if you start asking these questions, the person who said I kiln dried and they don't know what dry bulb and wet bulb is, I would go the other way because you probably are going to have lumber that's going to be case hardened or cell collapse, all kinds of nasty things going on with it. So yeah, I, I, I hate that idea of leave it to the professionals because I, at the same time, love this grassroots effort. You guys know this. I've talked to so many micro sawmills. I love that idea, but, um, case in point, you know, the more these micro sawmills I've talked to are talking about either sending their stuff off to be dried or they bought like eye dry kilns or they've, they've, they started building up their kiln infrastructure because frankly, they've ruined enough lumber that they've got a significant amount of money invested in um, and you lose it all or you lose it and then some because somebody puts a claim because you gave them bad lumber, you know, and you lose business because now you're the guy who produces bad lumber. It's too much of a knock to the reputation to deal with that. So more power to you guys. You want to dry your own lumber, just do your research. Look up these kiln drying schedules. Go to lumberupdate.com um, where this episode, let's see, this is, I'm going to think of a URL right now. I don't know what it is, but this is going to be lumberupdate.com forward slash 104. That will be the URL for this episode. And go there, download the kiln schedule, download the tension test. If you're unfamiliar with the tuning fork test, be familiar with these things and make sure you've built the infrastructure and whatever kiln you construct, make sure you've got the ability to capture dry bulb and wet bulb and be taking moisture meter samples. These probes are not super, super expensive. You can buy the probes, but then you actually have to have like, you know, the computer system to monitor it and all that. I'm sure there's probably software out there that can be had. I don't know. I haven't looked it up, but you want to have that monitoring in place. Have I beat this horse dead enough? I think so. So there's the kind of surface level dive into what drying lumber is like and how you actually need moisture in order to reduce the moisture of the wood. I hope that helps for everybody who's had those questions. If you still have questions on this, send them in to me, but do me a favor and say, hey, I listened to episode 104, I get it, but now I have this. Because I do get a lot of questions from people who maybe haven't heard this yet, and I don't want to say, hey, go listen to episode 104 if you've already listened to it. So make sure you've done your homework, folks. Listen, listen to episode 104, make sure you understand the principles, then send me those questions. I'm happy to answer them. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more detail I can get into on this. And if I don't know it, I know a lot of experts in kiln drying, people with 40 years of experience doing kiln drying that I can tap for information. So that being said, go buy some lumber, go buy some kiln dried lumber, go buy some air dried lumber. Just make sure you know how it was air dried and how it was kiln dried. <laughs> 